0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This morning I'm reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Let's turn to chapter 4. And this is the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Of the three temptations, you know, the meaning of turning stones to bread, ruling the world, that's fairly obvious, but leaping from the pinnacle of the temple may be less obvious why that's a temptation. But I believe this middle temptation is one that I happen to know something about. Throw yourself down so that you might be lifted on the wings of angels. As a child in Page, Arizona, up on the Navajo Reservation, I developed the capacity to fly. So I feel like I know something about this temptation. Flying over the desert of an evening, I can remember it clearly, around Window Rock, over the Grand Canyon, the cool breeze. It was good if you had a breeze so you could get some equilibrium And it was nice if the stars were visible so you could navigate. This was my singular capacity. And it always had to happen at dark, of course, and it always had to happen in secret. No one could be watching. But if you got the wind blowing just right and you pumped your arms just right, you could kind of gain confidence. And, of course, in Page, there weren't tall buildings. But... Uh, I could just manage, if I would leap off even a short building, I could manage to attain liftoff. Maybe the ordinary family into which I was born, they had their abilities, but they were earthbound. They wouldn't understand my unique abilities, and for me, flying was a kind of Immortality though at my tender age I could not articulate the fact. I was not grounded by the contingencies of bipedalism. Flight was incomparable with the local means of throwing a fastball or running the bases. Baseball was very big. But flying constituted a kind of ontological difference. And maybe it was just my incapacities. I was only about four or five years old and I was the smallest in a family of four boys. And my three-foot frame then housed an ego temporarily fallen from the heavens. And flying then was the equi- my equivalent of Kant and Plato, the equivalent of a philo- philosophical proof of being, of innate immortality. Sure, there are those who can sing or play the guitar, but what is that compared to flying? What is Mickey Mantle compared to Superman, after all? And that may have been the image I had. Freud claims there is no mortality in the unconscious, and this translates into immortal capacities that seep through to consciousness. The temptation of Christ, and perhaps the common temptation, is to imagine that due to who we are and what we can do, we can fly free of the common lot of humankind. We need not be bound by the laws of gravity like ordinary humans. We will be lifted upon the angels' wings. And maybe the newly minted ego is enabled by talent. You know, think of the celebrity never forced to face his own mortality. Or by religion and culture. Maybe we're enabled to fly through life untouched by earthy realities. And the temptation of Christ is the temptation not to be bound by humanity, by mortality, And Christ faces this temptation, not because it is unique to him, but this is precisely the human project, and he faces the human temptation common to all of us. The University of Chicago sociologist Peter Berger, he pictures culture and religion as making possible an enduring identity on the basis of a manufactured reality. That is, human beings manufacture culture and religion so that they will fly free of death and mortality and being forgotten. Think of the Babylites who would make a name for themselves on the basis of an indestructible tower. They said to one another, let us come and make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone and they use tar for mortar. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And of course, the idea is scattered abroad and forgotten. So to storm the gates of heaven on the ever ascending heights whether they be cultural, national, personal, I believe that is the human project. The temporal and mortal is overcome in an intensified effort to painlessly fly free from this mortal coil. Flying permits no equals, though, no true friendship or love, as the very point is to achieve the pinnacle of absolute difference. The oblivion, maybe, of death itself. The one who can turn stone to bread, who can be absolute ruler, need not depend upon anyone, and can look down upon everyone. Paul dubs this condition the slavery to death, as ridding ourselves of earthly connection, mere mortal relationships in the drive to life is to institute death as a way of life. Jesus' entire effort in the Incarnation is aimed at bringing us back to earth. Our tendency is to fly free, to be disincarnate, to attempt to fly free of the human condition. Jesus is the truly human one. He would bind us together in our humanity, in agape love, to institute the kingdom of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. The kingdom is not one that floats free of humanity. It depends upon humanity. It is constituted by hum- humans. As Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians three sixteen to 17, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 1 Peter 2, 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our problem is not that we are bodies or humans. Salvation is not shedding the body. Salvation is the resurrection of the body. To imagine with yeets that the soul, as he says, is fastened to a dying animal is to miss the Pauline notion that dying actually begins with the soul. Paul's soulish human is precisely the one that does not receive the things of the Spirit. Life itself in 1 Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Natural man, literally a man of animal soul, as contrasted with the spiritual man, this natural man is governed by this soulishness, which overbears his spirit. The problem is not in his body, Dying does not arise due to the fact that we are bound by our bodies. Dying begins with the attempt to fly free of death. You won't die, remember? You will be like gods, knowing good and evil. You need not concern yourselves with the mortal realm of tending trees. You can subdue the heavens. You can storm the gates of of God himself. Paul describes this struggle as definitive of death. It is the result of the objectification of the flight from the body due to the alienation of sin. The attempt to subdue the body through the rational spirit, as Yeats puts it, is the sign that the spirit of life is absent. Thus Paul terms this struggle as constitutive of the body of death. He cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? He makes no mention of the rational spirit. But he does say this, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Christ's refusal to leap from the pinnacle of the temple to be born on the wings of angels, is the refusal of the disassociation of the flight of this death drive that Paul describes, of the drive to fly beyond this world, beyond death itself. His unwillingness to attain the kingdoms of this world, notice in both cases it's from a high place, from a high mountain, by serving the spirit the noose, the mind, the geist of this world to refuse to bow down to this world's prince. These two temptations occur, you know, from these dizzying heights, which Christ certainly could have obtained. As humans, though, our temptation is to spend our lives scaling these heights to achieve the pinnacle of success. And Christ teaches us to come down to earth. While he will not turn stones to bread, Christ will offer himself as the bread of life. He will indeed be lifted up, but not so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, as Satan quotes the scripture, but to be the stone that men stumble over. His broken body, that's the point at which he's lifted up, His broken body brings us to earth and it is only in this grounded mortal condition that we can actually be with one another. It is the means to draw the world into fellowship. I will draw all men unto myself on the basis of this alternative kingdom in which the cross is central. Now judgment, he says in John 12, is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he is saying this, John explains, to indicate the kind of death that he was to die. Not a kingdom in the sky, but the incarnate kingdom of God with us with us even in death, in mortality, even through death. This is the new Jerusalem come to earth. The disassociation of flight, or the identity through difference achieved at this world's, in this world's pinnacles, is undone by the one whose body is the true temple. This body raised up and descended constitutes not flight nor absence, but the sign that he is always with us. Jesus is the temple of God's presence. I believe this is the meaning of the cleansing of the temple in John 2. The Jews said to him when he does this, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And John again explains, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the words which Jesus had spoken. The Jews hand him over to Pilate, and so they actually carry out the destruction of the temple that Jesus had prophesied. Rather than leaping from the pinnacle of the temple, as if this is the greatest height, in the hour of his death, Jesus is manifest as the temple builder, the Nazarene. In the hour of his death, he reaches heights greater than the physical temple. He reaches political heights greater than those offered by Satan. Even Pilate has nailed to his cross Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. He fulfills the prophecy of this great king in Zechariah chapter 6 verse 11. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yet it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is, the prophecy is of a priest king who branches out from where he is. Jesus accomplishes this not by flying off the pinnacle of the temple but by founding a new temple in his body. The new father's house, the new temple is born through the creative spirit released by Jesus' last breath. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in also in me, he says in John 14. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he go? Did he leave us absent? In the Hebrew Scriptures, my father's house always means the group of people who make up the household the family, the servants, the future descendants. My father's house is a quality of personal relationships. I believe he's describing the founding of the church. This is the place where we are being saved. And this is the dwelling that Jesus has prepared for us. A new household of God comes into being at the foot of the cross when believers are drawn into Jesus' own family relationship. We described this a few weeks ago when Jesus saw his mother, And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Jesus' mother is now the mother of the beloved disciple, and Jesus is now his brother. A woman and a man stood at the foot of the cross as models for Jesus' true family of disciples. And so endowed with the spirit, the new household of God enables the ongoing presence of God in this world. As I ceased to take flight in my life, I eventually lost the ability to fly. I don't know why. It was strange. Uh, I began to encounter the kingdom of God in the extended family of God. This past week. In fact, one of my students in India. He asked several times about the reality of the kingdom. Where is it? He said. What is it? He asked. And as usual, I had no brilliant answer. I only thought of it a few days later. And as I thought about it, how Paul might have answered such a question, we might have to go to those long lists, you know, those long, boring lists of names. He seems to attach to every letter. You know, Think of the end of the book of Romans. The whole chapter 16 is just a list of names. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is the servant of the church which is at Sincrea. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers, who for my life risk their own necks. Greet Eponitis, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. greet mary who was who has worked for you hard. greet andronicus and junius. and so it goes. name after name. i believe that's paul's answer. where is the kingdom? well, my first memories of it are in page, arizona, where i learned to stop flying In the little tin church in Page, and I mean tin, I don't mean, I'm not exaggerating here. It was just a little corrugated tin church. And Bert Lehman, who had graduated from Ozark, he was an iron worker, and I believe he was more iron worker than preacher, but he was also a preacher, and he built a little church. He put in little wooden pews. There was no floor. It was just desert sand. And I remember he would yell at me when I would throw the sand as a little kid. Um, during the sermon, by the way. <laughs> In my little kingdom, I can see gathered there, maybe Grandma Yakshigi from Japan. She's about the size, four foot, five feet high. She was shrinking every year that we knew her. And she serves me kimono. Grasshoppers, noodles. She's always smiling. I believe Nakagawa san will be there. Nishikawa san. I believe Cecil will be there, who baptized me when I was 13 years old. The most gentle of souls will be kneeling up front. Maybe Pastor Sheets from the Baptist Church will be there. I don't think Bert will be happy that they let the Baptists in. The ordinary folk will be there. The only kind of people I know will fill this house of worship. Jim Knight, the old cowboy that I used to work for on many occasions. I believe Glenn and Gary will be there. The journey from dust to dust does not seem so far. As I think back on this dusty crowd melding into the sand floor, maybe my students, Matt, Scott, Ryan, you know, go through the list. Shirley will be there. Larry, Nina, Dell, Mary Sue, Maisie, Chris, Imogene, Nita, Rita, CJ, Helen, isn't this part of what we commemorate in the Lord's Supper? The question is continually raised. Are you going to attempt to fly free of this earth from the pinnacle of the temple? Are you one of us or not? And as we celebrate communion, we can say, I'm one of you forever. Let's see. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, Or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.